Um, I decided quite a while ago, what, I decided early in the week, what passage I was going to speak on, and I'd done some work quite a while ago on, on the passage, but I'd just not had time to prepare to speak. And, and Sue had a very inconvenient birthday yesterday. Um, so when the family finally left yesterday, I sat down and I thought, oh Lord, what on earth do I do here? And I sat down to try and bring something together to bring this morning. And then I thought, no, I'm just going to say to them, I haven't had time to prepare anything this week. God bless you. Um, but, um, which I was tempted to do. But as I sat down, this is just God's grace. And it's a little example of God's grace and his mercy to us. It's, but it, it really encouraged me yesterday evening. As I sat down, I, those who do the projector will know, I'm, I'm, obsessively orderly in some respects. And one of the things I do is any time I speak, the notes and the PowerPoint and that that I have, I use canonical numbering to, to sequence them so that on my computer they appear in the order that they appear in the Bible. Um, so today's presentation PowerPoint is 62.09, I think. Um, so as I went in last night, and the reason it's 62 is because I also include the apocryphal books in that, because I do occasionally look at them, although I don't treat them as scripture. So don't come back to me and say, Mark's not the 62nd book of the Bible. Um, so as I sat down to prepare it, I suddenly saw 62.09. And I thought, that's strange. And I opened it up. And I'd prepared it last year, actually, for the Sunday before Lent, which came a bit later last year. Um, but we were snowed off. And I never brought it. And I just had this note saying, not brought because of snow. (laughs) Um, So that, to me, last night was just God's mercy to me. Um, So, uh, you'll remember a year or so ago, we were in Mark's Gospel, and we got up to about chapter 8. And chapter 8 is this wonderful chapter where... This is a real test now, if you can remember what we were talking about a year ago. Can any... (laughs) I won't ask you, Val... It's about time someone else rose to the challenge, really, isn't it? Um, so, um, I've lost my train of thought now. Oh, yes. So, what were we saying was the big question that the first half of Mark's Gospel was asking. Can anyone remember? Who is this man? Who is he? Who's this man who has all this authority? Who is this man who works these signs and wonders? Who is this man who confounds the Pharisees? Who is this man? And we have this wonderful point in Mark chapter 8, which is the turning point of the gospel, where Jesus says to them, who do the others say that I am? And they say, well, a prophet and this and that. And then he says to them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter says to him, you're the Christ, you're the Messiah. There's this wonderful moment where suddenly the curtain is ripped open and we see who he is. This man is the Christ. He's the Messiah. He's the Lord Jesus. Um, And so at that point, we stopped. Um, What I'd like to do this year is, as we go through this period leading up to Easter, is just to look at this, because it is a turning point in the Gospel. Um, Let's read it before I do anything else. So, we're in Mark chapter 8. I should have asked someone else to read this, for which I apologise. It's quite a long passage. But, as you've heard me say before, what the text says is far more important than what I say about it. So, we're looking at Mark chapter 8, verse 31 through to 9, verse 13. 
So he, that's Jesus, then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the priests, sorry, elders, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter, this man who just before has said, you're the Christ. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You don't have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Then he called the crowd to him, along with his disciples, and said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. And he said to them, Truly I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see that the kingdom of God has come with power. After six days, Jesus took Peter, James and John with him and led them up a high mountain where they were all alone. There he was transfigured before them. His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. And there appeared before them Elijah and Moses who were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it's good for us to be here. Let's put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses and one for Elijah. He didn't know what to say, they were so frightened. And then a cloud appeared and covered them and a voice came from the cloud. This is my son whom I love. Listen to him. And suddenly, when they looked around, they no longer saw anyone with them except Jesus. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus gave them orders not to tell anyone what they'd seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. And they kept the matter to themselves, discussing what rising from the dead meant. And they asked him, Why do the teachers of the law say that Elijah must come first? And Jesus replied, To be sure, Elijah does come first and restores all things. Why then is it written that the Son of Man must suffer much and be rejected? But I tell you, Elijah has come, and they've done to him everything they wished, just as it's written about him. Amen. Well, uh, I just want to say at the outset as well, we've heard some tremendous stuff this morning, and I don't want this to sound as though it's detracting from that, because it isn't. There are many wonderful facets to who Jesus is. And we've explored one facet this morning in what we've heard. This, I think, is another facet. It's not contradicting it in any way. So please bear with me in that. So this passage divides into three sections. Um, The first section, let me just... Um, uh, just to say, what, what was the ooh for? 
Oh, the transition, right. Okay. I have to entertain myself somehow, Samuel. Um, so, at this stage, they are up about as far north as Jesus' ministry ever goes. Um, so, they're up to the north of the Sea of Galilee there, somewhere. Some people will tell you they know exactly where they were. They don't. There's a whole lot of argument about it. Up there, somewhere to the north. Um, and from this point on, Mark's Gospel is suddenly now turning and heading towards Jerusalem. The whole focus of where it's going is towards Jerusalem, which is down um, beyond, off beyond the bottom on the left of, of the map there. So in this section, Jesus says, so there are three things that happen. The first is that Jesus predicts his death in the first two verses. So in this section, verses 31 to 33, Jesus tells us that he must suffer, die, and rise again which leads us actually neatly into the Easter narrative. Um, I struggle a bit over aspects of the way we talk about Lent, and I'll talk a bit more about that at the end. But it, it does kind of lead us into this narrative of what we face over the next six weeks or so. For those of you who don't know, the season of Lent starts this week. We have pancakes on Tuesday, which was traditional when everybody used up um, all the fatty, rich food that they had, and then embarked on... 40 days on Ash Wednesday of um, semi-fasting. So Jesus says to them, and just just put yourself in their position at the moment, one of the things I've learned in the last year is to imagine what it was like. Um, And as I imagine what it was like for these disciples, they've had a fantastic time, haven't they? They've they've just seen 4,000 people fed just shortly before this, They'd seen all sorts of miracles of healing. They'd seen Jesus confounding the Pharisees. It was a bit like making a complete fool of, I don't know, the Archbishop of Canterbury, Jeremy Corbyn and Theresa May all at once. Um, You know, he'd actually shown them up for being um, who they were. And they've got all these glorious stories. They must be thinking, cool, I'll be able to dine off this for the rest of my life you know, be able to tell people what's happened. And then they've had this wonderful moment where Jesus says, and who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you're the Christ. You're the Messiah. Christ and Messiah, by the way, are the same word. You're the Christ. And um, this wonderful secret is revealed. They must be thinking, God, we're made for life here. Um, We're the ones who were there right at the beginning with the Messiah. And then suddenly, Jesus says to them, I'm going to have to die. I'm going to be killed. And I'm going to suffer. And it's going to be difficult. And they must be just thinking, what on earth is going on here? They must be beginning to think all over again, who is this man? And Peter rebukes him. Peter says, no, Lord. No, 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 no. And we go from Peter being the only one who could answer Jesus' question of who do you think I am, to Peter being the one to whom Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. And it brings us right into the difference of understanding as to who the Messiah would be. The Jewish people are expecting a Messiah who will... 
get rid of the Romans, thrash the Romans, bring them freedom. Who will deal with the hated Romans, restore their land and bring in the era of God's rule. But instead of that, Jesus announces that he will suffer and die and rise again. Not what they're expecting, or even hoping actually to hear. And the get behind me Satan isn't referring to Peter as Satan, okay? Jesus sees Satan trying through Peter to distract him from his mission of going to Jerusalem, suffering and dying and rising again. Which leads us to the next incident, the second incident in this passage which we see in verses 34 to 38, where Jesus then speaks to the disciples and the crowd as well and says that whoever wants to follow him, the Greek doesn't actually use the word disciple, must deny themselves, take up their cross and follow him. And it's easy for us to underplay this statement. In the Roman world, crucifixion was the most horrible death it was an absolutely horrible way to die. It was the most horrible death imaginable. It was a form of execution that was reserved for the worst of criminals and the lowest of society. Many Romans wouldn't even mention the word. For them it would have been the S word, because crucifixion in Greek begins with an S. But it was a word that they would not use. They would not even use the word to crucify. And taking up our cross isn't something, isn't being regarded as an idiot at work for being a Christian or being mocked by the loudmouthed mother at the school gates who refers to you as a religious nutter. It isn't being ill, painful as things like that are. Taking up my cross is being prepared to give up my life itself. It's far more than what we will often glibly refer to as the cross that we have to bear. Jesus is calling his, his, his believers, his disciples, to value his kingdom and his gospel more than life itself. Jesus is clear that he will disown before the Father those who are ashamed of him in this life. I don't think that means one act of failure, you know, I've had agonised moments by the side of my bed at times over the last 40 years where, Lord, I completely failed you today. I just kept quiet when I should have spoken up. I don't think it's about one individual act of failure. Because Peter will later have one of them. But it's actually a life that conceals the fact I'm a Jesus follower. And then in verse chapter 9 and verse 1, we have a verse that's widely disputed where Jesus says there are some standing here who won't taste, won't taste death before they see the kingdom has come in power. Now, there are almost as many explanations of this verse as there are commentators, quite honestly. But, first of all, so if he's saying that there are people standing here who won't taste death until they see the kingdom of God has come in power... Um, we have to think carefully about that because it can mess with our theology if we're not careful. Um, and if we just ignore it, then I think we're lacking as well. 
So, first of all, the kingdom of God, if those people have already died, the kingdom of God now must already have come in power, mustn't it? Whatever Jesus meant before they died. Are you with me? I know it's Sunday morning, but if Jesus said that some who are standing here won't taste death until the kingdom of God has come in power, I'm assuming those people who were there have all died by now, which I think is a valid assumption. Therefore, the kingdom of God, if Jesus was telling the truth, the kingdom of God must have come in power by now, mustn't it? Okay. So, it cannot mean then the return of Jesus to this earth in glory. Otherwise, we all missed it. And the consummation of the kingdom. Because that hasn't happened yet, has it? Good. And Jesus also... We've, I've always wanted... I don't believe in the rapture. I don't believe in a premillennial rapture. But I have always wanted, in one of our prayer meetings on a Monday morning, to get someone to leave the room... All of us bring along a spare set of clothes. And while they're out the room, put our clothes on the chairs and quietly leave and just see what happens to them when they come back. But I've never done it. Anyway, sorry. Um, so, it, Tim's going to do that now, aren't you? <laughs> I just saw that look on your face. Um, so... Sorry? <laughs> the reason I haven't done it is because I've been concerned about giving someone a heart attack. So, it can't mean the return of Jesus to this earth and the consummation of the kingdom as that hasn't happened yet. Now, Jesus also denies in chapter 13 and verse 32, knowing the time when the end will be, doesn't he? So, if, that, if, if it's that Jesus is referring to... If, sorry, if it's that, if it's the end that Jesus is referring to, it means that he must have been mistaken. Which opens up all sorts of theological difficulties that we won't even go there, because I don't believe Scripture allows for Jesus to be mistaken. It could possibly mean the transfiguration, which is about to happen, but I think that's unlikely, and it doesn't really match the circumstances. So what does it mean then? Well, I would say, and, and the number of commentary writers that I respect would agree with me, is that it's referring to the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70 by the Romans as a preview of the final judgment. In AD 70, the Romans came and destroyed Jerusalem. Um, that's what I believe this is referring to. This is saying that Jerusalem rejected me and I will return in judgment. And he did return in judgment on Jerusalem and it was destroyed. That messes, I know, with some people's theology of Israel and so on, but that is what I believe this passage is referring to. Um, one of the beauties of, having, of going through books like this is you have to deal with the tricky bits um, and we're very good at avoiding the tricky bits. So, I believe that when Jesus says, some who are here today will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God come in power, that's what he's referring to. They will not die before Jerusalem is destroyed in AD 70. We read our Bibles without understanding that Jerusalem was destroyed in AD, or without remembering that Jerusalem was destroyed in AD 70, and I think it shapes our understanding of a number of things in Scripture, but I don't have time to go into them now. 
So, that's the second thing that happens. The third thing that happens is... It's working. Yes. Is the transfiguration, which we see in Mark chapter 9, verses 2 to 13. Um, We... Sorry? No, I, I meant it too. Otherwise, you'd all be reading what's on there and not following along. So, a lot of people claim... So, the transfiguration just means the occasion on which Jesus was revealed on the top of the mountain, as we read just now. Now, a lot of people claim to know where the transfig- precisely where the transfiguration took place and attempt to draw all sorts of symbolism from that. The fact is, we do not know. Um, we don't know where it took place. And if we were meant to know, it would probably have told us so. The fact is, we don't know. Traditionally, it was thought to be Mount Tabor, I think it was Mount Hermon, because they, having said I don't care, um, because they were near uh, Caesarea Philippi, which, yeah, up the top there. Um, And Mount Hermon is, as you can see, close by Caesarea Philippi. Mount Hermon is also considerably higher than Mount Tabor, and Tabor is to the south of the Sea of Galilee, So I think it is Mount Hermon, but we can't be certain. It doesn't really matter anyway. So, first of all, Jesus takes three of his disciples, Peter, James, and John, up a high mountain. Second, Elijah and Moses appear and talk with Jesus. And third, the disciples are terrified. I think I'd have been terrified, quite honestly. And Peter makes a rather obscure proposal to do a bit of ad hoc DIY on a mountain top. Um, I don't think I'd have remembered to take my toolbox. But, and then fourth, a cloud overshadows them and a voice comes from heaven. And then fifth, the three of them find themselves on their own with Jesus again. Now, I just want to draw out very quickly. There are a number of parallels here with some Old Testament events. And when you see strong parallels with Old Testament events in the New Testament, you have to ask yourself, what's this trying to tell us? So let's have a look at some of these. The parallels occur in Exodus 24. Sorry, that writing's not very big, is it? So, what we see is Jesus, in Mark 9, verse 2, takes three disciples up the mountain. Have we agreed so far? Moses in Exodus 24, verses 1 and 9, goes with three named people, plus 70 of the elders, up the mountain. Next, Jesus is transfigured, and his clothes become brilliantly white, radiantly white, in Mark 9, verses 2 and 3. As for Moses, in Exodus 34, 29, his skin shines. Without any cosmetic products, Moses' skin shines when he descends from the mountain after talking with God. And third, God appears in veiled form in an overshadowing cloud in Mark 9 and verse 7. In Exodus 24, verses 15, 16 and 18, God appears in veiled form in an overshadowing cloud. A voice speaks from the cloud in Mark 9, verse 7. Exodus 24, verse 16. What happens? You're beginning to get the idea here. 
And then finally, the people are astonished when they see Jesus after he descends from the mountain in Mark 9.15. And in the case of Moses, the people are afraid to come near him after he descends from the mountain. So what are we to make of these parallels? Any thoughts? God's the same yesterday and today and forever. What do you think this is saying about Jesus? Who spoke with Moses in Exodus 24? Who speaks with with Moses in Mark 9? So what's it saying about Jesus? He's God. Sorry? A foreshadow, yes. You speak up, Ed. Yeah. Absolutely. Moses saved and delivered his people. Jesus is doing the same. Exodus 20, the other thing that's going on in Exodus 24, for those of you who are not familiar with it, is the point where God makes a covenant, an agreement with his people Israel. So there's something going on here about a covenant being made as well. Moses and Elijah are the prophets of Israel, and they're talking with Jesus. So there's something here about Jesus being the one who the prophets were pointing to, or perhaps being a prophet himself. Moses and Elijah are also both men who were rejected by God's people, but ultimately vindicated. And the veil here over Jesus' true identity is drawn back and he is revealed in his glory, at least to these three disciples. We move on a step from Peter's identification of him as Messiah. He's actually more than a Messiah. He's not just the one who is going to come and free his people. He's more than that. And I think this is a declaration that God is reforming and reconstituting his people, Israel, around the Lord Jesus. God's people are reformed around Jesus. The church doesn't replace Israel, so don't accuse me of replacement theology, but God's people are reformed around the Lord Jesus. There's a few points that are worth making. First of all, the transfiguration occurs in very similar form in both the other synoptic Gospels, in Matthew and Luke, and also in the context of Jesus' identity. That's the context that appears in both those Gospels. This episode is pointing out that Jesus is more than a Messiah. He's God. And what about Peter's action? Shall we make you a dwelling place? I don't know about you, I'm very prone to moving on from what I would call holy moments too quickly to focus on the practicalities of life. Now, I don't believe, I got into a row this week over this, where um, someone described a lot of the day-to-day work we have to do as stuff. Um, And I said, you know, when you refer to the stuff that we have to do outside prayer and worship and leading churches as stuff. I want to hit you. (laughs) Because it actually disrespects what our people do in their day-to-day lives all week. It disrespects what I spent 30 years of my life doing. And 
it fails to recognize that God is in everything that we do. Whether it's topping up the oil on the car, doing the washing up, uh, trying to match up the socks, or clever stuff with computers, it's actually all holy. It is all part of our worship of God and all part of our ministry to God. Uh, and we used to have a church leader in Basingstoke who would speak very disparagingly about the stuff. In fact, I walked out of it once when he, he said that. Um, so it got me in trouble this week because it came up again and I was in a minority of one. But I'm very prone to moving on from the moment when God is doing something. Think, okay, what do we do about it? Let's get on with it. Um, so I can understand Peter here. You've got this holy moment... And Peter thinks, oh, a bit of a cloud coming. We're on with making some shelters now. Um, instead of dwelling in what God was doing at that time. I'm not necessarily that good at dwelling in what God's doing on the time. But that is, as I've already just said, not to say that the practicalities of life are not holy as well. We often make a false distinction between the spiritual and the earthly. And Peter does exactly that here. Rather than being happy to be in the moment and taking on what's taking in what's happening, he has to do something. And Peter might have been questioning whether it was good for him and the, the disciples to be there, but um, there's a question over the punctuation of the Greek text that I won't bore you with at the moment. Um, so transfigured isn't really a word that you and I would normally use, is it? It's not a word that has ever come up in my day-to-day life, I think. You know, I've never heard anyone say, I was in Sainsbury's the other day and I got transfigured. <laughs> um, it's actually the word that we get our word, the Greek word is the word we get our use metamorphose from, or metamorphosis, which means transformed and changed dramatically. And in the other two places it occurs in the New Testament, uh, it's translated transformed. Uh, I spoke on Romans 12 the other week about being transformed by the renewal of your mind. That's the same word as transfigured. Um, so I'm not sure why the translators don't use that much more common and simple word. I think they're almost trying. There's a kind of historical thing of, oh, this is a holy moment. We need to find a holy word for it. Whereas actually it's a common or garden word. And where else have we heard the voice from heaven? baptism of Jesus, where the voice from heaven says, with whom I'm well pleased. Verse 11 asks about Elijah. Um, I won't dwell on this, but Malachi 4, verses 4 to 6 says that Elijah must come first before God restores Israel. And Jesus says that Elijah has already come which I think is clear from the other Gospels, although not from this one, that he's referring to John the Baptist. So that just, that's the text. So what does all of this mean for us? It's not the most practical passage you could find, is it? Um, well, I don't think it is. Um, you, know, you could draw out some things like don't build tents on mountains, don't put tents up on top of mountains, but um, I don't think that's what he's trying to communicate, actually. I think this passage is telling us something important about Jesus and who he is. That this Jesus is God himself. He is the one who embodies God's people in himself. He is the one around whom God's people are formed. He is himself 
God more than a Messiah. Um, I get really, we know that I get really cross when people say that the Gospels don't say that Jesus was God. If you read Mark's Gospel and actually read the context of some of this stuff, it is abundantly clear. Sorry, I'm going off on one. But, so what does all of this mean for us where we are now? Well, I think, uh, and we've looked this morning at who we are and recognizing that we are children of God, that we are his sons and daughters, that we are a new creation, that we have been set free from all that we were. And I think this passage brings another facet to that, because if we just take that on its own, we can end up with quite a consumerist view of God. You know, it's all about me. It's all about how comfortable I feel, how happy I am, about me being ultimately happy. Um, Whereas actually what Jesus brings in is another facet here, that actually anyone who wants to come follow me has to be prepared to take up his cross, suffer and die. Um, And both of those facets are true. I'm not trying to detract from either of them here. Both of them are true. Uh, We, in our Christian lives, I don't know about you, but I've seen it hundreds of times over the past 40 years. You'll have someone who comes in joyfully and is marvellously born again and becomes a Christian and is full of joy for a period and then discovers that it's not actually as easy as they thought uh, and they end up giving up. And that we're at a kind of turning point here in, in Mark's Gospel where up until now for the disciples it's been great. Absolutely fantastic. You're hungry? Here's some food. Um, the Pharisees are giving you trouble? I'll deal with them. Don't worry about that. This person's sick? I'll heal them. Everything has been great. And suddenly we have this moment now where actually I'm going to suffer and I'm going to die and I'm going to raise again. And if you want to be my followers, you also need to be prepared to take up your cross. So this week we start Lent, which is the period leading up to Easter. And I'm, we, we'll, on Sundays when I'm speaking anyway, we will go through the narrative that leads us to Easter. I believe that the role of someone who speaks on Scripture is to draw people into the narrative of what God is doing on this earth, not necessarily to give them practical points for daily life. Um, and I think it, one of the things we can do during the period of Lent is to draw ourselves or be drawn into the narrative of what God is doing. Um, that's why I'm always more concerned with the big story of what Scripture's talking about than one individual verse. And I get a little frustrated. I've put a thing on the church website this morning, or yesterday afternoon about this, where I get a bit frustrated at the beginning of Lent, where people say, oh, what are you giving up for Lent? Um, oh, I think I'll give up chocolate. So they give up chocolate for 40 days and then binge on the stuff on Easter Sunday. <laughs> or I'm going to give up alcohol. Yeah, fine, okay. But actually, those approaches, I think, are essentially negative approaches. Because what happens is we give something up for a period of time, and then we just carry on as normal afterwards. We're not changed, the world's not changed. Now, there is no problem with that, in a sense. If we do something that improves our well-being, our health, reduces our carbon footprint, reduces our consumption fantastic. I'm not knocking it, so please don't um, take that. 
But actually, I believe that one of the things that's worth doing in Lent is to try and cultivate a positive habit. So rather than saying, I'm just going to knock off the chocolate for six weeks, or however long it is, just under six weeks, um, actually, I am going to give myself to praying for this. Or I am going to try and develop a Bible reading habit, and I will read through, actually Mark's Gospel is quite a good one to read through, because it's the shortest. Um, I'm going to spend some time each day just reading it and reflecting on what I'm read. So, I would, I, I, or the other thing that I've suggested to one or two people, I, in the charismatic world, we're not good at reading books, quite frankly. Um, so, I've suggested to one or two people, it might be good if they actually read a book. Um, I'm going to read through Tom Wright's Lent for Everyone on, on Luke's Gospel over the next six weeks, which is only a little paperback. It's not a, not a heavy academic book. It just has daily readings in it that you then reflect on. So these disciples find themselves in this place where they suddenly uh, must be realising... What do you think they're realising at this point? Sorry? It's going to get tough. That's true, very true, actually. It's going to get tough. They are suddenly realising, I've misunderstood what this is all about. This wasn't what I thought I was signing up to. I think we have a challenge. Have I misunderstood God's kingdom? Am I able, and this is a challenge to myself, not just to you, but am I able to spend time in God's presence, to soak in what he's, do, soak in what he's doing and saying, or do I immediately have to move on and do something? Am I, and this is the real challenge to me, am I happy to be or do I have to be a doer? And very often, our sense of our own value comes from what we do, not who God has made us to be. And I think that this Lent, as we approach Easter, is an appropriate time to look into ourselves and to consider our own devotional lives. By devotional lives, I mean the time that I spend in God's presence um, worshipping him, and worship isn't just singing songs, worshipping him pray, in prayer and in scripture. And these events all occurred before the Easter events. Jesus is here unveiled. What was a secret is now out in the open. What was hidden had now been seen in a light brighter than anything man-made. And Jesus is revealed, not just as a man who's ama- who does amazing stuff and who has the gift of the gab, and who's able to really outthink people and outsmart people. He is revealed as God himself come to earth. And we proceed from this point to the passion, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus, in which he is ultimately vindicated. But that doesn't get you or me away from the question that Jesus had to answer, that Peter had to answer. And the Peter, the question Peter had to answer from Jesus was, who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? 
each of us has to answer that question. Who is he? Is he my fairy godmother who comes to my need when I have an urgent need of prayer? Or is he God himself who has a call on my life, who's made me a son of God, who's dealt with my past? We've heard how our past is dealt with, and it was Jesus who dealt with our past. It's not about positive thinking that we can leave that behind us. It's because Jesus dealt with our past on the cross. So the question, I think, that every one of us has to answer is, who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? And the answer we give to that question actually reveals where we stand ourselves with Jesus and before God. Amen.